What's up, sports fans? It's time for Let Me Speak. I'm Joe Braverman, and on this show, we discuss the big news in the world of sports as heard from me, myself, and I. Here's what we'll be talking about this week. A full breakdown of how the Kansas City Chiefs won Super Bowl 58. Plus, the big winners and losers from last week's NBA trade deadline. And a special guest joins us to break down the Bruins' Stanley Cup potentials. You're listening to episode 104 of Let Me Speak. Let's get it started. Intro, please. Let Me Speak. What is going on, everybody? Coming here on Wednesday, February 14, 2024, for the 104th edition of Let Me Speak. Thank you, everyone, very much for tuning in. Just want to wish everyone a happy Valentine's Day out there. Whatever kind of love you're dealing with, I hope you are doing it together. Now, normally, we record this on a Tuesday, release it late in the night. We had to push it uh, one day because, as you can tell, I'm a little bit under the weather. It is that time in the month of February where cold and flu season really starts to pick up no flu no COVID just a little bit of a cold sort of getting things from my chest up to uh, my sinuses so you're gonna hear a lot of a lot of uh, sniffling a little bit of a raspy voice now and again but luckily I got no I got no UMass Boston to do uh, I won't be doing any WEI trending updates until uh, the weekend, so I can uh, rest my voice up in time. But of course, I'm never taking a rest here on this podcast, and we've got a great episode coming up for you, including earlier in the week, I got to talk to a very special guest about the Bruins. You'll hear uh, my conversation with Bridget Prue a little bit later, but of course, the big story starts with the Super Bowl, and everyone's talking about how Kansas City was able to pull off the victory in overtime, 25-22, to 22, over the San Francisco 49ers. Now, I'll be talking a little bit, I'll start off with what happened in the game versus maybe some big picture kind of stuff to get it underway. So really, when I was looking at the game, it felt like this is a game that the 49ers should have won. They definitely should have won, but it just seems like they couldn't get out of their own way. And I'll give credit as well to the Kansas City defense as well. I said Chris Jones needed to be much more of a disruptor, and the entire defensive line had to make things really hard on Brock Purdy because really the case was you give Brock Purdy enough time, it'll allow guys like George Kittle, Brandon Ayuk, Debo Samuel, a couple of those guys to start getting free. And most of the time, it did not happen. It was Chris Jones leading the way, how well that defense played. I knew that it was a really good Chiefs defense. I just didn't know it was going to be that good um <clears throat> making really making things really hard on Brock Purdy he only finished 23 of 38 and they had a really good plan the Niners did coming right out of the gate they took the ball uh even though they didn't win the toss and they marched right down the field and then all of a sudden Christian McCaffrey with that fumble that was going to be a touchdown drive it wasn't going to be just a drive to get any points out of it you know to get a field goal but they were motoring down the field they were having their way with Kansas City and then even in the first half in general that's just how they were looking at it did take a trick play 
for them to get to the end zone with uh, Juwan Jennings throwing uh, for a touchdown. He also caught a touchdown uh, a little bit later on, which was a pretty good play in itself. But this was the Niners game to lose, which they absolutely did. They just made some really uncharacteristic mistakes. You had the fumble. Uh, you had the muffed punt as well. And they came at really, really bad times. I mentioned the McCaffrey fumble. When you go back, though, to the muff punt, Kansas City was getting a little bit of momentum. Sure enough, here comes the muff punt, even though, like, the defense did their job. I thought San Francisco's defense did really good pretty much for the entire game. And then when the muff punt happens, you know, it only takes Patrick Mahomes one play. He fires it on in there, and all of a sudden we got a whole new ball game. Uh, with, uh, once again, Kansas City being down 10, and they're able to come back and come out with the victory. And just for San Francisco in general, their drives were always getting stalled out when they were moving well. I mean, aside from the touchdown drives and uh, that fumble or whatever, it just seemed like when it got to those areas where you were in field goal range, like the extra oomph to go and get the touchdown just didn't seem to connect and I don't know if that was how good Kansas City's defense was doing or just Kyle Shanahan sort of again crapping his pants in the really really bad time so um it just felt like a Kansas City you know everything had to go right which it did and I will have to say that you just can't doubt I said last week that even though I was picking the 49ers, I wouldn't be surprised at all to see Patrick Mahomes lead the way. And now they've got these back-to-back titles. They got three in the last couple of years. I think what you have to give credit to, um, I did credit the defense, but overall in general, I think you have to give it to Andy Reid, uh, the coaching in general, and then of course Mahomes in the quarterback. The way they were able to adjust from the first half to the second half was literally almost a carbon copy of how they've been doing their postseason games. You look in the AFC championship game where they were on fire in the first half, but then they struggled in the second half. Still were able to hold it off. This was kind of a reverse where it was sort of near the end of the first half. And then going into the second half, they really turned things around and looked so much better offensively. I mean, you go to Travis Kelsey, he only had a catch for one yard in that first half. Sure enough in the second half and in the OT, he had eight catches for 92. So the fact that they were able to game plan and give Kelsey uh, some more time, I mean, maybe pumping into uh, Andy Reid was it was a benefit to him. <laughs> uh, we'll get into that a little bit, but the, the game planning was really good. And then just Patrick Mahomes putting the team on his back. I said last week, that's probably what needed to happen in order for Kansas City to win this game. And that's exactly what he did. I mean, he led the team in rushing with 66 yards. He threw 46 times. He completed 34 of them uh, for 333 yards. He had an interception, but it wasn't too bad. If I had to say it wasn't as costly as it was um, for the Niners turnovers. And of course they also had the two touchdowns, but I think there are a couple of big stories coming out of this one. The three big ones I would say is uh, the Niners decision to receive in overtime uh, because of the new rules, Uh, Travis Kelsey bumping uh, Andy Reid, and then just the dynasty in general. So there's a lot of that off the field that I do want to get into as well in terms of, because obviously this happened early on uh, when Isaiah Pacheco fumbled the ball uh, inside the 10, Kelsey wasn't on the field. And uh, you have Kelsey 
uh, during the break. They go to a replay, and he's bumping Andy Reid, and he's catching him off guard. Now, uh, he did come out, you know, during the parade or whatever. He said, yeah, absolutely unacceptable. But what I do remember watching the pregame was, I think it was Bill Cower, Coach Cower from uh, CBS. He sat down with Andy Reid, and one of the questions was about Travis Kelsey's temper. And I thought it was really, really telling that Andy Reid uh, and Cower were talking about that. You know, he had Reid saying, you know, I've had to control it because um, there have been a couple times he's absolutely lost it. I mean, you go to earlier in the season where Kelsey is, you know, slamming his helmet on the sidelines and Reed is going to him saying, no, you're not going in right now. Um, and it was kind of fitting because when you talk about his his anger and his frustration, it leads to this situation. Now, I tweeted this out that this guy if he was any other player, if he was not Travis Kelsey, the best tight end in football today, um, he would not be going out on the field. He would have been bent, similar to what Bill Belichick did to Malcolm Butler in Super Bowl 52, I believe, when it was the Patriots and the Eagles. I remember that. I think if he's not Travis Kelsey, he's that he's going to sit on the bench for the rest of the game. And honestly, like that is a team suspension. If this is the regular season at all. So, you know, if you're asking me that if it wasn't the Super Bowl and it wasn't the player as capable, the caliber, I should say as Travis Kelsey, he'd be sitting his butt on the bench. And honestly, like I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, this probably isn't going to happen, but I would be sitting him, you know, for that first regular season game because you don't do that. You absolutely do not do that. I'm just telling you what Andy Reid was going through. The fact that it was the Super Bowl and this was arguably maybe outside of the quarterback, the most important player on the offensive side of the field for the Chiefs. So those are the only reasons why he stays in the game. And I think Andy Reid sort of understood that, that if there was no Travis Kelsey, Chiefs would not have any way to win this game. Now, me personally, you know, I have a sense of pride or I would have a sense of pride. And I know Andy Reid was talking about, you know, looking at his heart um, and that kind of stuff and his intentions or whatever. I'm sort of someone who takes after my mom and always assumes uh, the good intentions. But even so, you know, that would just be like me going, you know, as a youth player, going to my uh, youth basketball coach or whatever and saying, put me in the game and we wouldn't have lost. And then I just shove him. You know where my ass would be? Sitting on the bench. I wouldn't be um, going back out there and chanting Viva Las Vegas and basically having the time of my life dating the most popular person on planet Earth right now. Um, no, that would not be me. So I think the the idea, though, is that Kelsey needs to be held more accountable, um, which which he has, which he has. But I think in terms of like it's sort of similar to the Draymond Green situation is he keeps doing he keeps doing this stuff and kind of is getting away with it because not only of his talent, but he's got a good relationship or whatever with the coach. You know, you have Reed joking it off saying like, oh, my balance wasn't that good. Um, but I think, you know, what's going to happen next year is this could be something completely worse than just bumping into him sort of giving him a little chest bump or whatever and he could have like really injured reed if something worse happens then that's going to be a reality check so i think because they won the game and all that kind of stuff i think this gets swept under the rug but don't be surprised if something like this comes up before kelsey's career is said and done
I'm just telling you that right here, right now. You know, I wasn't a fan of him uh, off the field to begin with, and this just dro- drove home that point. Um, the second thing I would say, at least in terms of after the game was over, the coin toss. Of course, everyone's talking about like Kyle Shanahan and the decision because um, he decided to receive the ball rather than defer it. And you got to remember, there are new overtime rules, and this is the first time that we have seen it where both teams will be, get, will be able to possess it uh, no matter if it's a touchdown or a field goal. Now, I can't say, I mean, it's easy to say now that like, oh, the Niners definitely made a mistake. Not giving Mahomes the ball first um, was a big mistake. You got to keep in mind, there had never been an overtime played with these new rules. So it's definitely, definitely trial and error. And unfortunately, Kyle Shanahan has to be uh, a part of it. So I'm not going to get overly critical of that coin toss because we've never seen something like that before. We haven't seen it at all. Now, when we get to next postseason, this comes up again. I think that strategy is going to be different. Whoever wins the coin toss will probably defer um, and get the ball second rather than first. The only thing was um, it's not a good look if you have players saying, oh, we didn't really have a plan in OT. We didn't know about the rules. That's where that's where the criticism comes in. So it's just Kyle Shanahan in terms of like these big moments just continues to wilt under pressure. You go back to when he was OC during the 28 to three uh, comeback for the Pat, uh, Patriots. You go back to the last Niners Super Bowl loss. Um, it's hard to go against uh, Kyle Shanahan right now in terms of what he's uh, been able to do in terms of uh, clutch time. But I think everyone's talking about, you know, Kansas City being the next dynasty. Um, where do they rank in terms of this dynastic run? Well, everyone's talking about Mahomes being on the path as Brady. And yes, he's on the track. Um, I would put him in the top five, but I don't know if I would put him, you know, side by side right now with Tom Brady right now. If Brady's number one, uh, he's not going to be t- uh, number two. And honestly, even if he does match, um, which could happen, you know, Mahomes is only 28 years old. I would say I, I will probably still lean a little bit towards Brady just because me being a homer and all that. But if Mahomes has like a 10 year gap in between, you know, Super Bowls, because these Super Bowls have come back to back. Um, you remember Brady had the three early on. He went maybe a decade without winning at all. And then he wins another three later on in his career. I don't know if Mahomes is going to be on that same path, you know, Brady playing until uh, 45. But I think he could probably get to within one or two, if not tie. That That's how I would say. That's how generational of a talent uh, Mahomes is. And I would definitely put him at top five right now because he, he is just that good and... Um, I know at least as a Patriots fan, I'm a little nervous to see that dynasty overtake the New England dynasty uh, that we just saw in the 21st century. Uh, I really hope that doesn't happen, but Kansas City is on their right way, and no doubt about it that they deserved uh, to win that Super Bowl on Sunday. So congrats to the Chiefs for winning their third Super Bowl, the first back-to-back since the mid-2000s, and there'll be a lot of celebrating going on uh, in Kansas City. Uh, starting today with the big parade and then just all season long. The dynasty is just going to continue to grow and grow and grow. So that's, of course, the Super Bowl, which everyone has been talking about. But there's also some NBA news that happened in the past week that we need to dive into because 
it was the trade deadline. And while there weren't any big moves, there were definitely some winners and losers. We'll dive into those coming up next. Don't forget, later on in the show, we get a great conversation with Bridget Prude talking about the Bruins in our Let's Get Local segment. But we're going to dive into the NBA trade deadline, which happened a little over a, a little less than a week ago, I should say. And it wasn't the craziest deadline. Of course, if you remember last year, there were some crazy moves. Uh, you had the Kyrie Irving trade. You had the Kevin Durant trade, James Harden. You know, trade season was a little bit crazy. Uh, not as much, though, this year. But, of course, there are winners and losers for... Uh, some of the deadline moves that were made. I think, you know, I won't say there was like an overwhelming winner uh, in terms of the moves that were made. Uh, there were some pretty impactful moves. I think, though, if you had to tell me, like, who is who improved the best and made the best moves, like, as a number one overall? I think if you're asking me to answer that question, it would probably have to be the New York Knicks because this was a franchise that I thought was just maybe another year away or so but they have slowly been improving and shifting that philosophy in terms of going forward you got to remember this was a team that had um Quentin Grimes Emmanuel quickly the runner-up for six man of the year uh RJ Barrett you decide to trade those guys you get OG Ananobi uh and then from Detroit you were able to coax the Pistons to give you Boyan Bogdanovich and Alec Burks I think this is a team now that has a ton of depth when fully healthy, because you got to remember Ananobi and Julius Randle are out uh, with injuries right now. But I think in terms of how they've been able to develop, I think they they got their defensive uh, anchor because um, I don't really see Randle as a big uh, defensive guy. I think Ananobi is a really good uh, wing defender. Of course, you give Jalen Brunson some help uh, with the scoring with uh, Bogdanovich. Of course, you have the the grit of Josh Hart um, and DiVincenzo as well. So I think this New York team, you know, the way I look at the Eastern Conference is it's basically like the Celtics and then everyone else right now. I think the Knicks are sort of at that forefront right now. I think the standings have uh, Cleveland sitting at two uh, and then... Um, the Knicks, the Knicks are in there somewhere. I think they're probably the best candidate to get the four spot um, or that three spot. I think kind of similar to where they were last year, um, but I think they made probably the best improvements uh, that they made uh, among anyone. I would say probably right behind them has to be the Phoenix Suns. I thought they did a really good job in uh, getting upgrading their depth um, for a potential playoff run. You know, you bring in David Roddy from Memphis. Um, and you bring in Royce O'Neal from Brooklyn. I think this is a Phoenix team that started slow, but then really picked things up once you saw Bradley Beal, Kevin Durant, and Devin Booker start to play with each other. Um, they have some key veteran pieces as well, Yusuf Nurkic, Grayson Allen. Um, but in terms of the depth, you know, coming off the bench, I don't know if a guy like Keita Bates Diop, um, Nasir Little, um, you know, just rallying U2 Watanabe. Um, I don't know if those guys were going to be enough to uh, be able to help them out uh, for a playoff run coming off the bench because they're a little bit young. They're a little bit un uh, inexperienced. You've got O'Neal, who's been on a couple of playoff teams, and David Roddy has just been a key piece uh, for Memphis. I think those are really good moves 
uh, that Phoenix did make. So I think in terms of the Western Conference, uh, the Phoenix Suns made uh, the best moves. I will say the Thunder are right there behind them to be able to grab Gordon Hayward um, to give them a veteran run, kind of similar to Phoenix. You know, he's probably not going to play as much. You know, he's going to give them a little bit of scoring off the bench, but also you need that veteran for a playoff run because I think Oklahoma City is a little bit ahead of schedule. So they thought, let's get a veteran in here to help them out because there aren't really many veteran guys on that roster. You know, yes, Shea Gilgis Alexander, probably the leader, but he's had very limited uh, playoff experience. So I would have to say that Phoenix is up there, but right next to them uh, is Oklahoma city. I think in terms of the losers of the, of the trade deadline, I think you have to look at the Eastern conference and see the two teams that before the season were uh, two of the top title contenders. And that would be the bucks and the Sixers. I think when you're the Sixers, obviously their game plan totally took a 360 when uh, they lost Joel Embiid and they're going to lose him for a little bit of time. Um, But I think in terms of the acquisitions, you know, Buddy Heal gives them some scoring, but Kyle Lowry and Cameron Payne, I don't think that definitely like moves the needle for me. I mean, you still have Tyrese Maxey out there, but I don't think he's ready to lead his team on his own just yet. And Tobias Harris is too much of an inconsistent scorer that I really can't see the Sixers turning things around until they get, Joel and bead back. And then same thing with the Bucks. You know, they're going through their own thing with um Doc Rivers and they seem to be getting better. But I think just making a small move of getting Patrick Beverly, I mean, that's probably like a good, you know, it, it's hard to describe. I mean, Patrick Beverly's just he's like a gnat. He's an ant at a picnic. You just want to get rid of him, but you love his fierceness, you love his uh competitiveness. Um I don't think he's really that defensive guy that's going to all of a sudden make this defense look so much better because that's what the Bucks were struggling at. Um, it's obviously going to be the case, as I've mentioned for weeks now, when you give up Drew Holiday and you pl- replace him with Damian Lillard, you're losing defense uh, in order to gain offense. So um, I'm not really a big fan of making that one move. I think they needed a little bit more uh, defense. They need a couple more defensive guys rather than just Patrick Beverly. I mean, unless Doc Rivers can coax Lillard to improve his defense, Brooke Lopez can uh, be a rim protecting center. Uh, Giannis can continue to do his own thing. You know, I I just don't see it. I don't see it with the moves that uh, Milwaukee has made. Um, I would say the other loser uh, coming out of the deadline, I think, are the Lakers. I think that one is pretty pretty obvious because. This was a team that had to make a move because this is a championship-level team. You know, they're sitting in the play-in spot right now. That's not going to be able to work out. That's not going to work out for a team like the L.A. Lakers. They need to go after championships. And you heard LeBron, you know, saying over and over, or maybe he wasn't saying it directly, but he's implying it. You know, he's the best at implying things um, that these teams need. this team needs an upgrade. You know, it can't just be... LeBron and Anthony Davis leading the way. I think, you know, the biggest thing for them was getting Spencer Dinwiddie out of the buyout market. Um, But again, not moving the needle for me at all. You know, I think they have enough scoring, but it's going to be their defense that's really going to be uh, that focused in on as the Lakers try and go after a postseason run. So I would say 
the Lakers were not big winners in this one because they did not make any moves and they had to in order to sustain any kind of championship run. I think until now, they're going to be in the playing situation. And if it's going to be a Golden State matchup, they might be one in and one out when it comes to uh, their postseason chances this year. So those are the reactions for trade deadline. Um, I'm sure everyone will start to fit in with their new squads once we get back from the All-Star break, which will take place this weekend, which, by the way, is one of the many subjects that we are going to hit on in our next segment. Coming up next, it's our classic Quick Hits. Time for the usual segment where we dive into our subtopics of the sports world. It is our quick hit segment, and I think the biggest one that struck out to me in the past week has to go to the PGA and the the Phoenix Open, Waste Management Open, whatever the tournament is in Arizona. Now, backstory is this is a tournament. If you're not familiar with uh, this tournament, the PGA, this is one where uh, a lot of people get to, or a lot of golfers, I should say sort of have a relaxing environment. The fans are a little bit more involved. There's, of course, the famous 16th hole where there's music playing, and you got fans cheering them on. Well, this year, uh, things went a little over the line as we had a couple of golfers, uh, including Zach Johnson, getting into it with the fans who were pretty rowdy. Um, You know, I say rowdy as an understatement because I think there was a beverage or two or maybe six that got involved um in this tournament and i could dive into the whole um dying i i could do all the diagnostics about this tournament but it's simple like this i think alcohol in this tournament um cannot mix with the fans i don't care if they're like pre-gaming or not i think you know and we and we heard it you know from uh officials of this tournament that next year is going to be a little bit different um i think the attendance numbers um they're at least going to shrink that and I think they're going to have they should have a, a bigger uh, security influence on this one. And, you know, it, they might just have to make it like TSA or like your your standard bar or whatever, where you need security to like check. Have you been drinking tonight and be like, no, sir. And uh, all the kind of stuff like that. And I would hate for this tournament to really sort of get like an overhaul or whatever, because I think this is really fun. Um, and most golfers have fun. You know, you have like three golfers or whatever have an issue with um you know all these uh fans going absolutely nuts you know being in their like backswing or whatever but they just got to limit the attendance slash the alcohol sales um or whatever and you know there's going to be a lot that gets overhauled because i think this is good for the pga you know when you're bringing in sort of the um i don't know how you'd compare it but it's just kind of like the loose environment um the the loose environment that this tournament brings compared to everyone ever all the other ones where they're much more professional you got to be a little bit uh, more courteous or whatever this is a little bit different i think it's gr- it's grown so much that this kind of thing has happened you know it's just a matter of controlling its popularity because you're going to get so many requests for fans who want to come out uh to Arizona and be a part of this tournament because it provides that much flexibility in terms of you know fan behavior that kind of stuff but I do hope that the concept sort of stays, but they just get it a little bit uh, more controlled. Or um, or this could be, you know, sort of a one-year kind of thing. Maybe this is just one year and 
everything gets a little bit better tomorrow or the the next year. So that's sort of a wait, wait and see kind of thing there. Um, going over to hockey, um, big story coming out of this one. I saw this video uh, early last early this past week was uh, Morgan Riley. Uh, he had a late cross check to Ridley Gregg. Greg of the Senators basically had an empty net and he just fired it in there as a slap shot. And then right after Riley comes over, he cross checks him in the head. That leads to a bunch of scuffles. And sure enough, Riley gets suspended for five games. Now, the situation I kind of had like I had to watch it like a couple of times to sort of process it. And of course, listen to better hockey experts than I obviously uh, talked to Andrew Razor Raycroft. Um, and he's obviously defending um Riley in the instance of you you just don't do that uh with an empty net but I think regardless of anything you know whether unsportsmanlike or not um you can't cross check to the head you absolutely cannot and when you watch the video you have Riley coming right over um Craig was Greg was clearly uh caught off guard um and, you know, he is saying the right things. You know, he's talking about the heat of the moment and that he probably shouldn't have done it. Um, and he's talking about that Riley, he didn't think he meant to do that. But I think regardless of how unsportsmanlike it is, you know, if it's like a slap shot like that to an empty net or if it's anything unsportsman like that, you can take exception to it, but you can't cross-check someone to the head. Absolutely not. That is a very, very dangerous play and I thought the NFL or NHL excuse me got it right uh with five games I probably would have gone more I probably would have gone maybe 10 uh or something like that but you just cannot do that absolutely cannot cross check to the head no matter how unsportsmanlike uh it is so we'll have to wait and see when the uh Leafs play the Senators once again um shifting over to the NBA I wanted to get sort of a feel-good one here the Orlando Magic last night retired their first jersey in franchise history and sure enough it was Shaquille O'Neal's uh, number 32 you know what that means now that Shaq has his jersey retired by the Magic the Lakers and the Heat I mean that's some great company uh, to be a part of and during the uh, broadcast when I saw it on TNT I was sort of looking back at the old mixtape uh, from Shaq uh, during his times in Orlando I gotta say it's hard to go against possibly that being the best of his career I mean I would say like his his time with the Lakers was probably better than his time with the Magic. But when you're talking about like pure dominance and just like ungodly things that have happened, I mean, pulling down the backboard, you know, having the the stanchion after dunk bend all the way to the back. The fact that he was doing that was just absolutely insane. And that was well before his prime. That was well before his prime. But you can see why Orlando would want to retire his jersey. Obviously, he led them to their first finals appearance. Um, unfortunately, had to deal with that uh, great Rockets team with uh, Hakeem Olajuwon. But just at that, that feels good for me. I think Shaq, he kind of gets overlooked in terms of when you're talking now about like the best players. You know, you're... Your Michael Jordans, your Kobe Bryant's, your LeBron James. You completely forget about these dominant big men like uh, a Will Chamberlain or a Kareem Abdul-Jabbar or a Shaquille O'Neal. I'm glad he's still uh, getting that love. Uh, it's nice to see that no one will be wearing that number 32 uh, ever again. Staying in the NBA, though, uh, I mentioned it during our last segment, but uh, All-Star Break is coming up this week, and uh, they re- released uh, last week or so 
uh, the field for all the events. So we're talking celebrity game, rising stars, all that kind of stuff. Just I'll touch on it really quickly. I'm not thrilled about the celebrity game because, come on, are these really celebrities? I mean, the fact is Jennifer Hudson is going to be playing a basketball game. You got you actually have to be kidding me with that one. I didn't even know Jennifer Hudson could play basketball. Maybe she's better than I thought. You know, maybe that might tune me in. But I mean, you got like other names that I don't really recognize. I mean, you got like Walker Hayes or whatever. I'm a big country fan, so I recognize that name. But I mean, you have to go get like past athletes. You have to get Meta World Peace. You have to get CJ Stroud, Micah Parsons, who's my pick for MVP, by the way. I know they name an MVP, but Celebrity Game is not going to be uh, something I'll definitely be glued to the couch, definitely watching. Um, Rising Stars, I don't really get invested into that. I think I might be able to watch um, just for Victor Wimbanyama. want to see him against Chet Holmgren. Uh, once again, that should be a lot of fun. Skills Challenge, usually in this... I like the old format when it when they was just getting started. It was just an individual going through an obstacle course rather than this whole team dynamic, that kind of stuff. But usually, at least in this format, the home team wins it. So I think Team Indiana should win that one. And I think the home crowd should also continue to feel good because I'm picking Tyrese Halliburton to win the three-point contest. Um, I just think this is sort of his coming out party this season. You know, it started uh, with the in-season tournament. Now it's going to be at the All-Star break in Indiana. Um, so that's what I think is going to happen. Um, I am really looking forward to this one. Uh, the shootout between Steph Curry and Sabrina Ionescu. Um, I'm really looking forward to that one. And Steph has already been talking about how this opens doors for everyone else. I think next year, you know, maybe if Sabrina can win this one, if Ionescu can beat Steph Curry, uh, in this shootout, they might invite her to be in the three-point contest, to go along with the men. You know, that would be a lot of fun. I'm really looking forward to this. You have arguably the best player on the men, your best player on the women going at it in a shootout. That should be a lot of fun. And then the slam dunk contest. I mean, I've got a rooting interest in that, obviously, for Jalen Brown. Um, I mean, I, I will say, it. I don't think Brown wouldn't be participating if he didn't have some good done. So I think he sort of had this planned. Um, but I think when you look at the field of four, it's hard to go against Mac McClung, especially what he did last season. He was just on another planet uh, with his dunks. But I'm always a fan of these uh, NBA events, you know, these little skills competitions that they have. In terms of the game, I'll probably just have it on his background noise. <laughs> and and that's pretty much it. But uh, I, I will be uh, watching the events, uh, see what happens there. Uh, and then the last set one I want to bring up here is Jorge Soler. Uh, you know, by the way, pitchers and catchers are now reporting uh to spring training, which is always, always an exciting time. And there's still some big names out there on the market. Um, one of them is not Jorge Soler, as he signed with the Giants uh for three years of 42 million. I think, you know, whatever the Giants need to do to try and catch up uh and stay pace with the Dodgers, I think is absolutely crucial. So they had to make the signing really bolster their lineup, but there's still five big names, I think, out there. You still have Blake Snell, uh, Jordan Montgomery, uh, Cody Bellinger, I think, is still out there. You know, just naming a few off the top of my head. I would be shocked if, you know, we're a week away from the season and these guys still uh, are unsigned. But it's basically just Scott Boris, you know, sort of baiting his time and waiting for the right deal. Someone will come along with the right kind of money uh, to sign these guys. So, 
There you have it. Bunch of topics that we had to hit into, but now it's time for a special Let's Get Local segment as we throw it to our conversation, my conversation, I'd say, yesterday with WEI Bruins insider Bridget Prue. That is in our Let's Get Local segment up next. This is our city. So this is going to be a very special Let's Get Local. We're diving all in on the Bruins, and we need a special guest to bring us on. You may remember her from a past episode. You can also catch her on the Skate Podcast on WEI with Sunday Skate premiering on WEI this Sunday, 93.7, or wherever you get EEI radio. Very happy to welcome back Bridget Prue to the podcast. Bridget, thanks for taking the time once again. Joe, it is great to see you. I feel like I haven't seen you in forever. Yeah, our paths haven't crossed yet with Red Sox season yet. It's been a bunch of different schedules, but you've been knee deep in the hockey season, especially the bean pot. Yes. You were just covering the bean pot for both the men and you were on the call for the women. So talk to us about uh, what the bean pot was like, because it's pretty much like the upper echelon of college hockey. It's my favorite event of the year in terms of college hockey. I actually usually go as a fan. Uh, because I don't get to go watch hockey as a fan pretty much at all. Um, so this is like the one opportunity a year that I'm like, I'm getting tickets. I'm sitting front row. I'm like having a beer. I'm enjoying it. But this year it didn't work out like that because I had to work both games, which uh, I'm not complaining, though, because I got to be the play-by-play broadcaster um, as part of an all-female nesting crew uh, for the first time ever in the first uh, woman's bean pot on TV Garden Ice. So uh, that was a lot of fun. And then the men's bean pot also championship game also went to overtime, same result, Northeastern won both. So uh, it was exciting. And that's, like I said, my, probably my favorite college hockey event of the year. And I've been to the frozen four for whatever reason, I still like the bean pot better. I don't know why. Just some, something about the energy. I mean, North, the Northeast is pretty much the, the PS de resistance of turn in terms of hockey so if you're if you're succeeding in the northeast in any kind of hockey you've definitely made it so it must have been great to maybe see some future pros that you'll be talking about uh when you go to the nhl a lot a lot of future pros there and there's plenty of bruins prospects playing in those games as well bc has a few harvard has jamie langenburner's son uh, as a defenseman there. there there was quite a few bruins prospects that First of all, that is like the dream of scouts is to to go to the bean pot and watch all of their prospects and uh, watch Macklin Celebrini. Uh, if you're trending towards the bottom part of the NHL right now, you're going and you're watching Macklin Celebrini play because he's projected to be number one overall and he plays for BU when he had a great bean pot, actually. So um, it's you see like Don Sweeney's there, uh, a bunch of the, the Bruins uh, management staffs there, and I'm sure from other teams around the NHL as well. Yeah, all eyes were set on that bean pod. You had briefly mentioned the Bruins, so I think let's get right into it. We're about probably two-thirds of the way through the year. Playoffs will start in about two months or so, and I would say surprising to everyone, the Bruins sit atop the Eastern Conference. They're a few points back of Vancouver, I believe, for the best record in the NHL. Talk to me about what you've seen uh, from your vantage point about the Bruins season so far, because I think no one had expectations that this team would be back to where they were a year ago, considering the departures and all the moves that they made. 
Yeah. Well, when you lose even just one of your top two centers, you're probably thinking, okay, how are we going to make up for this this season? Is this something like, how far is this going to set us back? Are we going to be a wild card team? Are we going to make the playoffs? But um, in the preseason, me and the all of the other members of the skate podcast, which are Brian DeFelice and Scott McLaughlin, we all picked the Bruins to finish second in the division. Uh, so we had different teams finishing first, but we thought the Bruins were going to make the playoffs. They weren't going to be a wildcard team. They would be a number two or three um, in the Atlantic. So uh, they have even outperformed that. Uh, a lot of people had them not making the playoffs this year at all. Which is funny to me, though, because it was pretty much the same people who said they weren't going to make the playoffs last season. And we all know what happened last season. They had the best record in NHL history. So um, a lot of people definitely um, underestimated them. But one of the main reasons why they're back where they are is because of goaltending. Um, really solid decor, but goaltending in the probably the first month of the season bailed them out. And then they were able to build chemistry around it, you know, get new looks at lines with Charlie Coyle centering the top line and at times Pavel Zaka centering the top line getting the new personnel in so goaltending helped them get their footing and they've been making progress and kind of rolling with it yeah it definitely feels like it it sort of came out of nowhere but it didn't come out of nowhere because there's still a holdover from last year's team but there's also some changes you have more younger guys standing up like we saw uh, Matthew Patra we were talking about uh, before he got hurt now he's done for the year is there one person or one skater in particular or maybe a handful or so that has surprised you in terms of how they've been able to perform with the role they're given I think so in terms of players that the Bruins brought in that weren't or just in general that weren't on the team last year I think Morgan Geeky has done more than I've expected him to uh he's played center he's played wing anywhere from the third line to the first line he's he's actually looked effective next to Pasternak, next to Frederick, next to pretty much whoever you put him with. Um, and so I've been impressed with him. And by the way, Don Sweeney, most of the guys he added were on pretty small contracts. And these were these were players he had to identify as they can help the team but fit under the salary cap. So Morgan Geeky only has a $2 million a year contract. Um, so that's a pretty good steal based on the way he's been playing and how versatile he's been. And James Van Riemsdyk is here on a $1 million contract, which is insane because he was the number two overall pick in his draft year um, behind Patrick Kane. And he's older now, but he doesn't seem to have like hit that wall yet that that you can sometimes hit when you're towards the, the latter half of your career. And he's been on their top power play unit. He's been on their their in their top six. Uh, he's done really well, I, though. I will say his ceiling was always high. So it's just lucky that he is still playing at that close to the ceiling level. Well, I think you also have to talk about the fact that Jim Montgomery takes him out of the lineup, puts him back into the lineup. I mean, you've talked uh, with Jim Montgomery much more than I have. What what would you attribute uh, all the lineup changes that Jim Montgomery is going for? Is he looking at big picture? Is he is that kind of what we saw? Because we saw in that first round, he made a lot of lineup changes really quickly um and he seems to be doing the same thing but just with some minor touches with every game what would you say to all the line charts and the line changes that he's been making throughout the year so some of them are to do with injury as well so a lot of the changes that they've had to make in the past few weeks um and just throughout the season have been to accommodate for low like load management 
small injuries that are not going to keep you up for a long time, but just give this guy a little bit of rest. He's banged up. And that's what's happened with JVR. Like you alluded to, um, he's had, he's dealt with some little things along the way. So he'll get some rest. And as an older player, also the load management uh, aspect. And then you see with Matt Potra out the need to change some lines up and even have some call-ups as well. So, uh, and I think what more you're alluding to though, is just the fact that he likes to tinker because it's fun. Um, and I think most coaches are tempted to, to tinker all the time. And he's last season in particular, he had so many different options that were fun to play with. Like he had Taylor Hall, like we're going to put mm -hmm. Taylor Hall, where are we going to put? And then after the trade deadline, it was even more. Um, so trying different combinations, especially when you have teams that are, are players on this team that are having to play different roles in last year, or they're fresh to the team altogether. Uh, yeah, you you see that moving around a lot. Well, so far, the combinations have worked out so far. You mentioned earlier about the goaltending. That's probably been the strongest part of the Bruins team. You got Jeremy Swayman and Linus Allmark in net. It's kind of different now this year, because last year it felt like Linus Allmark was the number one, and Swayman was his backup, but they were still splitting time. Well, now look at this year. You got Jeremy Swayman being the number one. He's making the all-star team. Elinas Allmark has been playing backup. What would you say about the, the goaltender room between those two? Because it seems like to them, it doesn't matter who's starting because they always end it with a big hug, regardless who's in between the pipes. Yeah, and that's not a shtick. Like they, they're genuinely pretty much as close as you could possibly be like best friends. Um, and so they really do mean it that they want each other to be successful, but they also will tell you that uh, they want to start. So uh, it's a very weird dynamic that that's why people are skeptical of it is because it doesn't happen in the NHL really at all. Like we, when we've talked to Andrew Raycroft uh, because he's, he's part of Sunday skate and, and he's a former Bruins goalie. He was like, that would never happen with, when I was in a goalie duo, like I'm trying to take your job. So uh, usually there's hard feelings about that. And they still are trying to, you know, be, be that starter, but I feel like they, they wouldn't be happy if they weren't together either. So um, they push each other and that's why they're the best goalie duo in the country. And even though Swayman has the better numbers um, this season than Allmark, I still don't really see them as like, an A and a B, they're still just one A, one B. Like they're they're very close in terms of you can count on either of them to go in there. I still think Olmark has like some of the flashier saves, like the more impressive looking saves. And Swayman is just like a calm, uh, steady goalie in there, and and he'll he'll make the the right positional stops. Well, let me ask you this, because I've been saying for a couple of weeks when it gets down to the playoff, you got to go with one goalie and sort of ride it out. And I've been on the Jeremy Swayman trade. What would you say to that? If it came down to the playoffs and you needed one goaltender between Allmark and Swayman, who are you putting in the net to win the game? So I'm actually, and I was in this camp last year as well. I'm actually under the belief that what it has worked for them when they were playing their best was to split the net and that I would actually be someone who wants to see that tried. And I know in the history of the NHL, once again, this is a, uh, kind of a taboo thing to to even like suggest but if you think about what the Bruins strengths have been their their goaltending has pushed each other when they both get a chance and they like like last uh playoffs bringing in Jeremy Swayman for game seven put him in a really tough situation so I feel like you've got to get them both in early 
and then they feel comfortable and then they feel like, okay, I can win this and, and I can contribute. Otherwise you're, you're sitting and you're watching. And then when they do need you, you're, you're coming into the series cold. And I just think it's something that's worked for them two seasons straight last year. They were a little bit too scared to go to it and it's unprecedented, but try it. I mean, maybe it's the next thing that, that coaches look into like, okay, we have this great goalie tandem. Let's try, let's try it. Um, it only works for the Bruins as of right now because they have two they have two goalies that could start anywhere. Um, so they're they're in a unique position to try it. So I know that didn't answer your question because <laughs> I I didn't pick one or the other, but I want to see both. I want to see them both get a chance. And I, I I'm not saying it has to be 50-50, but they both should get in early cool. in the series. So in the first four games, I want to see both of them. That's quite the professional way of dodging the question. I salute you for that. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's well, really what I believe. I don't want to just see Swain uh-huh. and I don't want to just see Allmark. Uh-huh. And but like the real answer, if if you're wanting to choose one, it's whoever's hottest at that the given time, you know. Yeah. And um, it's a unique situation, as you said. There's never been really anything like this where yeah. you have two incredibly hot goaltenders and you can ride either one. So it is embrace a embrace it. Yeah. Keep going. Use it to your advantage. I think it could be an advantage that that they didn't utilize last year. Yeah, because obviously, you know, you'll be able to attest that Allmark and Swayman, as you mentioned, have like different tendencies. So at least from the game planning standpoint, that might throw a team off where you got to be ready for Allmark or you got to be ready for Swayman. It's just a matter of who you're going to get. That's just some extra preparation on the other side. Uh, let's talk about the trade deadline because we are a little bit, uh, we're less than a month away. It's going to be Friday, March 9th is the deadline. Do you see the Bruins making any kind of moves uh, or improvements uh, in certain areas? What would you uh, say to that? What Don Sweeney might do? Well, they have to make at least one or two moves because um, they're not a perfect team. Uh, So they, and they do have deficiencies that they need to take care of. And the issue is that in terms of cap space, same, same as to start the year, they're limited. Um, And so they, because nobody's on like say Derek Forbert was on long-term IR at the at the trade deadline like we saw last year Taylor Hall got hurt right at the I want to say right time to add extra pieces because if he wasn't on IR at the at that point they wouldn't have had the cap space to add Bertuzzi and Orloff and you know what I mean so um this at this part of the season it doesn't look like they're going to have any flexibility with the cap so they're either going to have to add smaller pieces. Um, but ironically, that is kind of what they need. So I feel like they could use a bottom six tough guy. Um, and Pat Maroon is someone that we've talked about on the podcast as being someone with playoff experience, two Stanley cups. Um, and Bruins fans remember him because he was a pain to play against, uh, when they had to match up against him in the playoffs. So, uh, bringing him in, Some people might say, oh, he's a little bit slow. He can play fourth line minutes. He has an offensive upside more so than some of the guys on the fourth line do right now. Like Lauko, who's playing up in the lineup at the third line right now, doesn't, you know, he's not a great goal scorer. Uh, Oscar Steen doesn't produce a lot of offense. And they're not, like, Lauko fights, but Steen is not really bringing that physical aspect. So I think if you replace one of those fourth line guys with someone like Pat Maroon, who... If you put him out on the ice, he can he can provide energy with his physicality. I think 
you don't even have to give up maybe a mid to late round draft pick for him. So that in that case, you're not giving up. We don't have many higher mm -hmm. draft picks to give away anymore as we've gone over, but uh, you don't want to give up another first round draft pick because you already don't have many of those left. Yeah, are so, there any are there any players right now who might be on the cutting room floor, maybe expecting to be traded for the Bruins, like on the way out? I don't think so. Um, the prop. So most of the time, people are bringing up, oh, trade Grizzly or or Forbert. The problem with that is they're on expiring contracts. So you're trading. You'd have to trade them to a team that wanted them to be part of their long-term plan and it would have to be like a co immediate contract extension like a deal to to get that but i i just don't know how much value either of those two players have for a rebuilding team um and I, it's it's hard for me to pinpoint someone that the writing's on the wall uh for them to to be on their way out because i just don't i don't think they have a specific player like that and i i think we're looking at some smaller trade deadline moves this time maybe a uh bottom four defenseman that has some physicality and a a bottom six forward that has some physicality could be what you see uh targeted yeah it's interesting that you bring up physicality that seems like the one area of growth that this Bruins team needs before they get into the playoffs is there anything outside of physicality that you say is like the biggest area of improvement that this team needs to make before we get to the postseason? Yeah, they, I mean, they need to get more scoring from their bottom six and, and they've been getting it from the third line. Trent Frederick has had a great year. Morgan geeky looks good on the, on the third line as well, but that fourth line does not produce. And you want to have at least someone that's an offensive threat on that fourth line come playoff time. Uh, so you're trying to add ideally to the depth of your team because you you're not adding you don't have the ability really to to go out and add a top six forward I don't think um so you need to add to the depth part of the team and that includes uh adding a little bit of offense from somewhere yeah, especially when you look at the playoff history. We know David Pasternak sometimes disappears in the postseason. The scoring gets a little bit tricky for him. So it's kind of a wait and see. Uh, last thing I'll bring uh, uh, ask you is about the whole NHL landscape. Right now, we're looking at the Bruins on top of the Eastern Conference, but there's always going to be that spoiler. I mean, who would have thought that the Florida Panthers as the eight seed would have gone all the way to the Stanley Cup a year ago? Is there one team around the NHL that you could see playing spoiler right now. And it can be from either the East or the West, uh, but that could potentially topple the Bruins Stanley cup chances. Well, the thing about the the playoffs is that it could, it could really be it, it, the Stanley cup playoffs are different than any other playoffs because it, any team could really get hot at the right time and, and spoil. So um, let me see, looking at, like you can't call Florida a spoiler anymore because they're actually one of the better teams now. So they're not like hanging out towards a wild card and um going to sneak up on anyone. I I my instinct tells me maybe Detroit because Detroit has played Boston hard. Uh they're they're not a bad team. They're right there in, in the second wild card spot. Uh, they're somebody that was in a rebuild for a while but they're pulling themselves out of it. 
And I think that if they, cause they're on the bubble, they might not make the playoffs, but if they do, they could give some teams trouble because they're not, they're good defensively. They're, they're tough. They're, they could be a similar situation to the Panthers last season. Well, either way, it's going to be a fun final two months for the city of Boston and our Bruins. Bridget Pru, thanks for taking the time again. You can check her out on Sunday Skate every Sunday morning with Scott McLaughlin and Andrew Razor Raycroft. Before we let you go, give us a little tease on uh, Sunday Skate, which will be happening every Sunday on EEI, and as well as the Skate podcast with yourself, Scott, and Brian DeFelice. Yeah, I'm excited this year. Uh, you know this, Joe. That I produced that show for a long time and I would chime in occasionally, but now I'm I'm promoted to being one of the three hosts and I'm excited about that. Um and I love working with Razor and I love poking Scott and annoying the hell out of him. So you can expect that to happen pretty much uh every Sunday. He he's <laughs> probably not so happy that I got promoted and I got a microphone in front of me to to jab him as much as possible. But no, it'll be good. And um, it's every Sunday, 9 a.m. to 11. So if you're awake, um, tune in because it's the only like solely Bruins show on the station. And we'll be going now until the Bruins get knocked out, which hopefully isn't until June. Like we don't want an early exit like last time because we have so much fun doing it. So yeah, you got Scott and his popcorn and Razor with his unique taste in suits. Hopefully he might be able to bring that velvet out. One day. I mean, it might be a little bit too early, though, to bring out the velvet, <laughs> especially yeah. on the radio. <laughs> yeah, there's no visual component to it, so no one will know. But no, right. they're, they're great. And Razor is one of the nicest people ever, probably because he's Canadian. So, <laughs> of course, Canadian is the way to go. Bridget Prude, thank you so much again. Sunday Skate on WEEI. Catch it every Sunday beginning this Sunday at 9 a.m. on WEEI. Bridget, thanks again for the time and let's hope for a successful Bruins season. Let's hope, Joe. Special thanks once again to Bridget Brew for joining the show. Uh, I hope she's completely okay with this being released a day later. But again, Sunday Skate, WEEI, 9 to 11. Tune in. It's going to be a lot of fun. And now, to end the show as we usually do, we go to our LOL moment of the week and I feel like this one is pretty obvious we got to go back to the Super Bowl and there wasn't anything you know during the game it has nothing to do with Taylor Swift or whatever we're going back to the broadcast of it and not the main broadcast on CBS with Jim Nance and Tony Romo who Romo could make lol every single week with his kind of comments but we're actually going to go to the Nickelodeon version of this first off I just want to say I love that Nickelodeon has decided to enter the the NFL and uh, these kinds of things, I think it's a really good decision to get sort of a kid's perspective on uh, how the NFL uh, has been able to incorporate that. And I really think they need to be doing it with all these sports. You know, when we get to the NBA Finals, I hope Nickelodeon can do a broadcast for that. Hope when we get to the Stanley Cup, they can do something like that. World Series, so on and so on and so on. I really, really enjoy this. And of course, the one that's going around... Uh, is the viral clip because apparently the voices of SpongeBob SquarePants and Patrick Starr were along with uh, Noah Eagle and uh, Nate Burleson, and it was Christian McCaffrey's fumble that really made the uh, made the news in terms of what was going around on social media. Take a look at this. Who's got it? You have to firmly grasp it. <laughs> 
George Karloftis jumped on it, and the Chiefs have the ball. I got to say, as a child of the mid-2000s, I love the callback. This is this is slowly turning from a broadcast for kids to a broadcast for adults. I know a couple of people who were watching the Super Bowl on that channel with Nickelodeon, with SpongeBob and Patrick as these announcers or whatever. And honestly, I think this is turning into something for adults, sort of a nostalgic kind of thing, because it seems like everything like that, you know, it seems like they're doing call callbacks to the old SpongeBob shows. Of course, if you don't remember or if you're too young to rem remember uh, in the jellyfishing episode, it was firmly grasping the neck goes right through Squidward's hands or whatever. Um, that was, you know, it, it, it was so great. So great. Um, I absolutely love I, again. I'll say it over and over and over. I love Nickelodeon getting involved in these professional sports leagues. I hope that they continue to do more broadcasting and they don't just limit them themselves to the NFL. And it seems like, you know, at least on the NFL side of things, you know, players are enjoying it sort of these behind the scenes where I guess they have like an MVP and then their teammates get to like slime them or whatever uh, for winning that award uh, each week. I, I think it's a great thing that uh, Nickelodeon has uh, decided to do. As I say, I hope that they get more and more involved because it's not just now for the kids and uh, getting them involved uh, in the NBA, uh, NFL, anything like that. Just it's another way to grow the game. You know, they've been growing it internationally. Now let's grow it for the youth. So I applaud Nickelodeon and the NFL for doing it because they always have something during an NFL broadcast that they seem to that seems to be really making the rounds. And I got to say, it's fun to watch. It, it's so much fun to watch. I'm not going to say that, you know, next Super Bowl, I'm going to be tuning into uh, the Nickelodeon broadcast. No, I'm not going to do that, but I'm definitely going to be like watching my feed to see, okay, which callback did uh, the SpongeBob people do now? Uh, which player accidentally cursed on a Nickelodeon broadcast? You know, is the voice of Patrick going to call out one of the players? I have no idea, but I would say uh, for Nickelodeon for putting this together and specifically for SpongeBob and Patrick for the incredible one-liner that they had during Christian McCaffrey's fumble of the Super Bowl. They've landed themselves into this week's LOL moment of the week. And with that, that is a wrap for episode 104 of Let Me Speak. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in. If you're watching us on YouTube or listening to us wherever you are getting this podcast, make sure you're following myself on all social media platforms. I am Joe Braverman, PBP, uh, on Twitter or X. Make sure you're following this podcast on Instagram and Facebook. Just search Let Me Speak Podcast. I, again, thank you all for tuning in, and we'll see you next time where hopefully I'll have a little bit better of a voice and we'll be feeling a lot more healthier for our 105th episode of Let Me Speak. Later!